Hello, I'm Keith Johnston, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. In today's episode, we're going to listen to a session from last year's technology and innovation EMEA event. Dan Beeler and Paul Miller discuss how technology and creativity work together to drive innovation and differentiation. If you like what you hear today, be sure to check out our upcoming technology and innovation events this fall in Europe, Asia, and North America. To learn more, visit for.com slash tech22. That's F-O-R-R.com slash tech22. Let's take a listen. So welcome to this session about how automation can support creativity at work. I'm Dan Bieler. I'm an analyst at Forrester, and I focus primarily on innovation and the future of work. And I'm here with my colleague, Paul Miller. Paul. Thanks, Dan, and hello, everybody. As Dan said, my name is Paul Miller, principal analyst based here in the UK, and focus primarily on the smart manufacturing space, as we'll be hearing about in a moment. Dan, back to you. How do automation, technology, and creativity fit together? Creativity is at the center of its activities really an act of conceiving something new. Technology, meanwhile, can undoubtedly kill creativity. Just think of teenagers who are mindlessly using their smartphones. And automation technology involves the mechanization to remove people from certain tasks. And many people would say that's a cause for concern. But if we free up our time from mundane and repetitive tasks, then automation technology isn't really threatening creativity. We would argue it's enabling it. This session today will focus specifically on the dynamics of automation in a European context. And in Europe, we have a greater government involvement and oversight of businesses than in North America and many Asian countries. The opportunities and extent of automation, therefore, will differ quite significantly from scenarios in North America and in Asia. Also, automation will impact the European workforce differently, depending on which country, of course, and which sector we are talking about. And in Europe, um, we can, of course, see that it's not just one picture, one homogenous entity. Specifically, what we see in Europe is that there are large differences in economic performances. We see there are varying employment levels in manufacturing, depending on which country. Businesses are facing heterogeneous labor regula um, regulations, very much depending on the country. And there are fragmented skill clusters in different European regions. Also, governments have developed different priorities in terms of their COVID stimulus packages. And we see European manufacturers aiming to boost business resiliency through global supply chain redesign, which has a big impact on certain European regions, for sure. And lastly, digital manufacturing requires process transparency into all computer systems in manufacturing plants across Europe. Customer demands are shifting more rapidly than ever. We see this in, in really all the interactions that we have with clients. And customers value great services and experiences more than just a focus on price or quality. Therefore, new value propositions focus on services and experiences. And creativity is really essential during the identification of a customer challenge or a business objective. And more creativity is a prerequisite for effectively devising ways to address these customer challenges or business objectives. So creativity is the basis for coming up with a solution to a problem or opportunity. Creativity is really at the heart of human-centric design. And Paul, maybe you can add some observations here from a manufacturing angle. 
Yeah, happy to. So this notion of the shift from product to service and through to experience is one we see across all sectors. You know, um, consumer packaged goods, um, banking, healthcare, financial services, and all the rest. But as we look at the manufacturing sector, it's even more important, even more relevant. Think of all those Mittelstand companies in Germany that have been making the same industrial product for a hundred years, and they've been making a great physical thing. That's where their expertise has been. That's what they've been known for. But as they look to engage their customers, their suppliers and their ecosystem in new and, and more um, innovative and more sticky ways as they move forward, they can't forget the physical product they've always made. That's, that's what people want to buy. But increasingly, they're having to wrap that around with services and with experiences that will engage their customers enrich their customer experience, extract data from those customers. And this shift from product to service and experience is critically important for the manufacturing sector. And also because of their basis in the physical world, hard, difficult. The people they have may not have the skills. The processes they have may not be set up correctly. And we'll look at all of this in more detail as we go on. So by its very nature, automation is transforming production processes. For instance, it impacts how businesses engage with their customers, their partners, and also their suppliers. And over time, therefore, automation will also therefore transform business models. Old school organizational structures in our conservative culture will hamper creativity. And successful agile organizations are breaking with these ossified silo um, structures that we see in, in many organizations still, and are transforming towards a much more diverse and inclusive culture where creativity inspires employees to work with each other, where hierarchies are getting flatter and where communities at work are growing, where virtual workplaces are opening up new possibilities and new talent pools and where deploying and developing talent virtually becomes more sophisticated with tools such as AR and VR, where also digital customer service tools can work in symbiosis and support human agents, and where adaptive workforces can flex up or down depending on the resources that are required in response to changing conditions. And Paul, again, maybe you can add some angle here from the manufacturing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the important point is that one at the end about the adaptive workforce. And we've seen manufacturing, like every other industry, adapting fast and adapting in very impressive ways to the pressures and the tensions brought about by COVID and also by the supply chain issues we're seeing around the world at the moment. So, for example, all of those manufacturers of physical things that I talked about a moment ago, in the past, you know, a whole two years ago, um, they would sell you a physical product, a physical machine, and part of that sale would probably involve them sending their field service engineers along to your factory or your office or your place of work to service that physical thing every three months, every six months, every year, whatever the, the maintenance cycle was. And clearly, as the pandemic came along, suddenly that was no longer possible. Either those field service engineers weren't able to fly because the borders were closed, or even if they could fly, perhaps your organization didn't want to let them in the door because you were trying to control access to a space. And so we saw manufacturers of all stripes 
adapting and innovating fast here. Dan mentioned augmented reality, and we saw that being used to support uh, remote assistance and remote inspection, where those experienced engineers perhaps would stay at home or perhaps would be in some office somewhere, but they wouldn't be physically next to the machine. Instead, they would be uh, you know, calling in remotely and walking your employees through that repair, that inspection, that replacement of a component. And that's a behavior that sticks. It was already around a little bit before COVID. It became a huge deal during COVID. And actually, we don't see anyone going back from it now because they've discovered that it works. It gets the job done cheaper, faster, and more effectively than the old way of sending engineers out on planes and trucks. Dan. So when we talk about automation, we also need to look, of course, at the human aspect of the story. And the basic premise is that happy employees are contributing quite considerably to happy customers. And creativity is important in this context because organizations benefit from employees who think about how to improve processes and technologies along the different stages of the customer lifecycle. And engaged and creative employees are all the more important as emerging value propositions are based on delivering these great services and experiences that we mentioned. Creativity is also critical for addressing problems that limit great employee experiences, therefore. So employee experiences really determine the degree of employee satisfaction with their work environment. And as we know, it is engaged employees, employees who are willing to go the extra mile for customers who make the difference. The importance of employee experience is gradually sinking in as an important topic amongst European businesses and business leaders. Although one should say the interest in EX in employee experience remains significantly lower in Europe than in the US. However, in 2021, we did ask clients how the importance of the employee experience initiative has been impacted by the pandemic. And the answer was quite clear. Three times the number of firms increased their employee experience initiatives, then decreased these programs. With significant talent shortages, we believe, in, in many areas of manufacturing, such as, for instance, in high-tech manufacturing, improving these experiences of your employees is therefore critically important and critically um, imperative, really, to attract and retain the best talent. Paul, over to you. Great, thank you. And yes, that, that point about employee experience, critically important. And clearly, an engaged, empowered, happy, productive employee has to be comfortable in their workplace. And one of the things that drives discomfort massively is any talk of automation. That automation may be physical automation, so robots, or it may be software automation, replacing human processes and human workflows with software, things like robotic process automation, for example. And this is the immediate assumption. As soon as we start talking about automation, it's about replacing people. It's about firing people and replacing them with robots, hardware or software. And of course, done right, that's not necessarily true. The way Forrester looks at this space and has done for a number of years is very much to consider automation as an augmentation of the human. It's a way of taking away some of the mundane, repetitive, dangerous tasks that humans at the moment have to do, allowing robots to do those, 
not so that you don't need the people, but so that the people can do better things, more enriching things, more important, more valuable things. So for example, instead of having a human being picking up lots of heavy pallets, um, let a robot do that. Robots are good at picking up heavy things. And then allow the human being to direct the robot. They may be a bot master or allowing them, you know, once the robot has delivered that heavy component to the human, the human is then configuring it, attaching it to, to the vehicle that they're building uh, or, or whatever it may be. But very much the human augmented by automation allowed to do their job, the things they're good at more effectively. And that's an important part of the conversation here and one that doesn't always get heard. You know, when you start talking about automation, the conversation, the media headlines very quickly go to replacing all the humans. And that's not necessarily the right way to do it. And it's absolutely not the right message to convey to an employee workforce that you're trying to engage. And yet, as we look at it, you know, as we look at some of the data that we see around adoption of robots, Europe is actually doing quite well. Um, a lot of the, the assumption might be that the robots are all in Asia. The robots are in China, the robots are in Japan, the robots are in South Korea. And yes, they are. But we're also seeing significant adoption of physical hardware robots in, in Europe as well. And as Paul already hinted at, there are, of course, these scary headlines like 60% of all workers in Europe could see themselves being replaced by automation or 70% of job tasks are likely to change significantly because of automation. Yes, these figures are out there. The jobs most likely to be affected by automation imply low levels, often low levels of education, routine tasks, predictive tasks, and no complex social interactions. For instance, we could be talking about drivers, machine plant operators, cleaners, construction workers, and yes, also manufacturing. In a recent survey, we found that European employees are more suspicious of automation technologies than their Asian colleagues. Only six out of 10 European workers really trust automation technologies. They are clearly more concerned about issues like privacy or more fearful of being replaced by a robot than some of their, their colleagues in other parts of the world. And still, as we have just seen, automation is already here and employers therefore must ensure the most effective collaboration between employees and machines. And we have evidence that automation does not translate in, into um, desert lands of um, unemployed people. We see that the rich countries, they use automation very significantly. This also raises the important question whether robots can do creative work themselves. I think we all agree that creativity involves combining ideas in novel ways. And machine and deep learning, for instance, arguably mimic evolution and in this respect can produce some creative solutions. And yet, um, we find in, in surveys that 64% of IT professionals believe that humans are better suited to tasks that create more value for customers than AI-powered systems. Over to you, Paul. Great, thank you. So hopefully the message you're all hearing is this, you know, human 
and automation, human and machine working together to deliver that value, to deliver that creativity. The automation freeing the human up to do what they're good at. That's the, the important point to keep remembering as we go through here. Now, another piece of survey data. And here we're talking to European frontline workers in sectors like manufacturing. And we're asking them how confident they are that they can easily work alongside a machine to jointly solve problems. It's a relatively simple question. How confident are you that you could work alongside a machine in your frontline role and, and get the job done? And this is on a scale from one to five. So for everybody we asked, every European frontline worker we asked, 3.6 on that scale of one to five said, yes, we can work alongside machines to solve problems. That's not bad, that's okay. It's interesting though, when you break the data out and look at the seniority of the respondent. Over on the left-hand side of the slide, the actual worker, the person who's down there on the factory floor, either expected to work alongside a machine or actually doing it today. Slightly lower, 3.3 say yes they could on that one to five scale. Then you move all the way to the right-hand side of the diagram and we're up to the bosses now, you know, sitting in their nice carpeted offices at the top of the tower, looking out over their factory, master of all they survey. For them, they're much more confident, four on a one to five scale, saying, yeah, our people can work alongside robots. So there's a bit of a disconnect there between the people actually doing it and their, their bosses directing them to do it. A bit of a disconnect, but actually it's not huge. It's not you know, terrifying. There isn't a, a, disc, a, a, a total failure to communicate and a to total failure to understand, but there is a bit of a, a separation there. And so it's worth remembering that. If you're one of those bosses looking out from the top over the factory, spend some time down there on the factory floor Talk to people who are actually doing the job and begin to understand some of their concerns. Begin to reassure them where you can about those concerns. So with that, that's sort of the high level, the theoretical stuff, the process stuff. We now want to make it a little more tangible with three examples of European organisations actually doing this and doing it well. First of them, Dan. Thanks. So let's look at one of the largest and oldest manufacturing businesses in the world, Bosch. It's very large, very traditional. And over a decade ago, Bosch realized that it could not really keep up with the pace of innovation that smaller, nimbler digital competitors put up. And so initially Bosch thought that it could solve this problem of innovation speed essentially through digitizing its technology infrastructure. And for instance, it started to introduce solutions um, where they, they made humans to work with robots more closely. Bosch intensified the usage of robots that work alongside humans. In particular, it, it um, ramped up its APAS assistance. And one such division, Bosch, uh, Bosch Rexroth, for instance, relies on collaboration between humans with a robot for the precise tightening of motorbike spokes at BMW motorbike plants. It also uses robots for automated picking, as Paul um, hinted at earlier, and also inspections of the quality of products. 
But interestingly, this alone did not really translate in much faster innovation cycles and greater creativity. So Bosch realized there is more to this um, problem, this challenge, than the technology part. And it embraced the, the notion of transforming its culture. And now Bosch combines human-robot collaboration with cultural transformation. It defined uh, a new purpose as a North Star so that everybody could rally behind it, invented for life in Bosch's case. It created diverse teams, so different educational levels, different, different social backgrounds, ethnicity, age, gender, and so on. It implemented permanent cross-functional teams to break down the silos between different divisions and set the user and the customer as the constant center of all its innovation activities. It also introduced a concept of coach-like management styles, whose job it is to support the employees. And it increased and um, boosted its communication transparency, so more frequent communication, flatter hierarchies, more authentic communication. Paul, over to you again. Great, thank you. So from Germany to France, Schneider Electric, another large European manufacturer with over 300 plants around the world, making all sorts of things. Um, so they're, they're well known in the energy sector, they're well known in the data center space, um, smart buildings, smart home type use cases as well, and lots of other things as well. The important point for Schneider, as they've gone through their digital transformation, and as they've engaged with things like the World Economic Forum and their Smart Factory Lighthouse program, and Schneider has uh, two or three of those now, um, their, their overriding uh, observation was the focus on outcomes, not technologies. Now, this should not be surprising. This should be obvious, but we all consistently fall back onto thinking about technologies and not the problem we're trying to solve. We, we keep doing it, every one of us. And in Schneider's case, you know, the, the recognition that we're not deploying an IoT platform for IoT platform's sake. We're not deploying robots for the sake of having some robots. We're not doing an, an augmented reality pilot just to play with some cool augmented reality technology. We're solving customer and employee problems. And we focus critically down on that. The other recognition was that they needed to get down on the factory floor. You know, the, the innovation team back in the carpeted parts of the organization talking about what might be nice to do gets you so far. But actually, you need to get down into those 300 factories and talk to the people who are doing the job for real. Understand the process they're going through understand the outcome they're trying to achieve, hear from them where the friction is, where the pain points are, ask them how they would do it differently. You will often find, given the autonomy, given the freedom to create, the individuals doing the job know how to do it better. They just haven't been allowed to because the rules have to be followed. The org chart has to be obeyed. And once you begin to release some of that, those restrictions, creativity starts to bloom down on the plant floor where those people know what they're doing. And the final point from Schneider, also this recognition that setting up a new separate organization to drive the digital transformation was the wrong thing to do. Because if you set up a separate organization 
and make it responsible for innovation or automation or creativity or any other buzz term, it suddenly becomes their job, not mine. And if it's not my job to be creative, I don't need to be. I can leave it to Dan. And if the creativity isn't happening, it's Dan's fault. I have no need to take ownership of that. And so a recognition that by not creating this new separate organisation, they empower every individual to do it themselves, to be creative, to have those ideas, to bring them forward and then have them looked at and embedded into the organisation. So that was Schneider in France. Now we'll hop across the border to the Netherlands. Signify uh, used to be uh, Philips Lighting. And again, an organisation, a traditional maker of things going through a digital transformation. In their case, the Industry 4.0 transformation programme. And for them, it was a four-year programme. And they started, like so many of us do, and I was just talking about this, focused on the technologies. Let's look at deploying some IoT. Let's look at deploying some robots. And it didn't really work. You know, they got reasonable success in pilots and proofs of concept, but they didn't scale. And the shift came and the success started to come when they stopped thinking about technology and started thinking about the customer outcome. And in their case, the customer was internal. The customer was people in their factories. And they began to work through that process again of aligning technology, aligning change to actually help those internal customers achieve their objectives, help them get their job done. And they introduced things like shared KPIs across both their IT team and their operational teams down on the plant floor. And they succeeded together because of those shared KPIs. They also importantly failed together. So if they weren't both achieving their ends, none of them were succeeding. And that again forced that feedback loop to get these individuals working together across boundaries that until very recently were quite rigid. It was us and them. And by breaking down some of those barriers, they began to take shared responsibility for the success. Similar in some ways to the, the Schneider example I talked about earlier. So those are our three examples. And this is our, our sort of final slide and our final set of points. Transforming the workforce, transforming the business has to start actually with a transformation of you, the managers, the leaders, those people sat at the top of the building looking out over your, your empire. And start off by recognising the change that's have to going to have to happen there. You're going to have to change the processes by which you hire people, perhaps. You're looking for new skills. You're looking for new capabilities. You have to engage with that and, and engage with how you're going to onboard those people into an evolving, changing organisation. The old hierarchies, the old top-down control doesn't cut it here. Dan. And the very role of a traditional manager is transforming into that of a guiding coach because we believe that the leaders of tomorrow, and we see evidence of this, will give their people more leeway and empower them more. So we see the shift that Paul hinted at from the classic top-down command and control management towards that of a coaching style management approach. 
And these managers help employees to fulfill their tasks. Therefore, it's critical to make management innovation a mandatory topic as part of the automation transformation and reserve management control for issues like emergencies or non-performing staff or also new hires. Paul. Just very briefly, I've said this several times over the past half hour, culture is the key here. Engaging those people, empowering those people, having them feel connected to the organization. Even the lowest uh, shop floor worker, you know, banging away at metal, they have to feel engaged and empowered as well. Technology, which is often where we go first, is a very, very, very small part of the story. If you don't get the culture right, all the robots, all the machine learning, IOT, all the IoT in the world will not help. Dan. And importantly, you need to find the right balance of innovation creativity with process development. So cult culture of creativity and collaboration relies heavily on issues like agility, experimentation, open ecosystems and the like. And at the same time, there needs to be some level of structure to ensure that proper steps are being taken to advance innovation through the different stages of development. Think of identifying customer needs or obtaining approvals, the feasibility testing of particular inventions. Um, think of customer safety, cyber threats, or of course regulations and compliance. Solutions to this balance could be to explore a skunk works approach to innovation or to um, autonomous work teams with minimal supervision. For some interesting details, how you can really find the right balance, look at our recent Amazon case study that we have written. And there are lots of interesting ideas that are worth exploring. If you would like to learn more, you know, please do get in touch. Please do have a conversation with us and look at how some of the examples we shared from Bosch, from Schneider, from Signify, might apply in your organization as well. So thank you all very much for your time and enjoy the rest of the event. Goodbye. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.